invite you to take your Bibles and join us in 1 Peter chapter 1. In a moment, we begin reading in verse 10. 1 Peter 1, verse 10. As we do, I'll remind you that as we began a week ago looking at 1 Peter, Peter indicates his audience are Jewish people who have converted to Christ, so they're Christians, but they have been scattered by the persecution against the Jews inaugurated by the Roman Caesar or emperor. So they are now exiles in a far country. They don't live in their hometown or homeland. They've been scattered. And in the midst of that, they are in difficulty because that's kind of what goes with the territory. When you're in exile, you're, you've experienced difficulty. Now, their particular difficulty is uh, a large part uh, physical, right? I mean, there's, there's a lack of... If you, Displaced from your home, there's a lack of money. Displaced from your home, there's a lack of familiarity. Displaced from your home, there's a lack of relationships. You move into a strange town, you don't know anybody, they don't know you. They don't love you, care for you, keep up with you. You get treated differently, perhaps. There's all that. And then, of course, there is the whole idea of pursuing Christ and doing that uh, in the midst of a government that is against you that wants no part of you, that is in fact in the middle of what we would call today a purge, a purge of Christian people. And so in the midst of all of that, there is a, a great fear or anxiety or difficulty of every kind that's surfaced in the lives of these people. And I uh, read First Peter in, in that light, I hope you do as well, because my circumstances are not that, but they are similar because we live as exiles here. Our home is in heaven. The Bible tells us plainly that our citizenship is not on earth, but in heaven. <coughs> and so accordingly, the world or the world system, the culture around us is not friendly to those who are faithful to Christ. The persecution is not necessarily physical in this world, or rather in this country, but in many parts of the world it is physical because of your devotion to Christ. We don't experience that for the most part here, but there is societal pressure, there are financial pressures, certainly there are cultural pressures, and as such, we contend with that. On top of that, there is the whole principle of suffering in general. Uh, I would tell you that today there are many more people who are suffering in other ways because they have physical challenges or financial challenges or they have relational challenges that are just sort of general in nature. They're not uh, indigenous to just Christian people. Everybody has challenges physically. There are dread diseases and all kinds of problems that come to us, and we must contend with these. And in the midst of all of that, the apostle writes to these people who are experiencing a very specific kind of trial, which may be different from ours, but the principles are the same. We want to hear these principles and think about them as we find ourselves looking for strength or looking for joy in the midst of hardship. So he has spent the preceding nine verses talking about our salvation, and he's going to reference that salvation and assume that you know what he's talking about. So I'm going to assume, without reading the first nine verses, that you remember what those nine verses say. He reminds us that we have been born again to a living hope. We just sang about that earlier. And that that hope is based upon the power of Christ over the dead, or the death of Christ has been triumphed by resurrection. So he holds up resurrection, and he says, now this, this resurrection, 
Life rather than death ought to buoy or give lift to your life. You ought to experience joy and hope, power in your life because you believe that no matter what happens to the body, no matter what happens to your earthly life, no one save Christ has any jurisdiction over your eternal life. So we're going to read this together, just verses 10, 11, and 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So much to say here, but we'll just isolate three things in these three verses. You'll note, first of all, in verse 10, he references the word grace. Now, for those of us who are Baptists, uh, been around Baptist churches all our life, when we read the word grace, our default setting of interpretation or understanding is invariably the grace that comes in knowing Christ as Savior. And I am not in any shape, form, or fashion going to somehow devalue that. Indeed, that is the greatest grace that God has given to me or to any of us uh, that He has given us His Son. And it is by grace that we are saved through faith not of ourselves. So we're thankful for this grace that results in our salvation. But I want to suggest to you that there are other ways that God graces all of us. They're too endless to count. The fact that we drove here this morning and didn't have a wreck is a grace. The fact that we actually have our parts functioning right now. My lungs are working. My heart is working. How do I know? Because I'm not prostrate here on the floor. Something's working. It's working well, far as I can tell. Praise God. It is a grace. God has graced me and you in countless ways. I have no idea all the ways that God has graced me. Even this morning, what could have, might have happened or didn't happen. I, I don't have any way to calculate any of that, neither do you. So God gives grace on top of grace. So there is saving grace, and then there is sustaining grace. The grace that actually permits our lives. But he, so, so this grace falls into that second category. The grace of sustaining our lives, or, or at least giving us life, or, or, or working in such a way as to protect our lives. I want you to note that, and I'm going to summarize it by simply saying that ours is a great grace. Notice how he phrases it. Concerning this salvation in verse 10, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Ours is a great grace. Now, what does he mean here? Well, he references prophets. Now, prophets are Old Testament. You know, the Bible is two sides of the same corn, coin. I'm going to come to corn in a minute, so I got ahead of myself. Coin. Two sides of the same coin. There's the Old Covenant, there's the New Covenant. There's the Old Testament, there's the New Testament. The Old Testament prophesies of the day when the Savior will come, the Messiah will come. The New Testament declares His coming 
and then helps us to look forward to his second coming. And ultimately, the book of Revelation is the final chapter of the coming of Christ a second time. So the First Testament looks forward to his first coming. The Second Testament testifies of his coming and prophesies of his second coming when we will finally be delivered from this body of death. So, but ours is a great grace because we live on the New Testament side of things. It's been two millennia since Christ came. And the record of this book is his incarnation. He was born, born of a virgin. How do we know that he was born of a virgin? Because the New Testament tells us that. But it tells us that in fulfillment of what a prophet said in the Old Testament, Isaiah 7. A virgin shall give birth to a child. He was born in Bethlehem. How do we know that? Because the New Testament confirms that he was born in Bethlehem. Confirms what a prophet said, in this case Micah chapter 5, that the Messiah would come and be born in Bethlehem. And we could go on and on and on. The Old Covenant is looking forward to the coming of Christ. But what these prophets of old didn't understand, because this verse actually says they didn't understand, was when this was going to happen. They had a piece of the puzzle, a piece of the plan. They had an awareness of this, and they were sure that it was the will of God. And yet, they didn't know how to put all that together, and they certainly didn't know the calendar, the timeline of the work of God. But you do. You do. Which means that you have a great grace been given to you. You're not trying to understand stuff that's hard to understand. Okay, it is a little hard to understand. Virgin birth is a pretty big concept. But you have the record that it actually happened. And you have the witness and testimony of eyewitnesses that it actually happened. Then you have the spirit that testifies in your own heart and life that in fact these things are true. And the reason we live our lives in certain ways and don't live our lives in certain other ways is because of the witness of all of these voices in our life that are sure and true. We've been given eyes to see and ears to hear. And it is a great grace. It is a great grace that I've been born on this side of the cross. How does that help me with my sorrow or my suffering? If I'm one of these Jewish Christians who finds himself in ancient Asia Minor, modern Turkey, and he's displaced as an exile, what difference does it make that I know these things? What difference does it make in my life, your life, when when I suffer or go through sorrow or hardship? What difference does it make to know that these things are true? Well, it is a significant grace, is it not? That it's not cloudy. That it's not murky. I know that I know that I know that Jesus died. I know that I know that Jesus was raised from the dead. I know that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. According to Romans 8, he is praying for me right now. Praying for you right now. I prayed this morning, God, help me, help them, those who hear. Make it count, make it stick, make it true for them that they believe it. 
It is a great grace that you can look back to that historical bold line where God actually did what the Old Testament prophets said was coming, but they didn't know when. This, this verse 11 says that they were inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings and glories. When is this going to happen, Lord? I know this is the will of God, but when? When? Well, they didn't know. They weren't told. But I've been told, you've been told, this book testifies of the experience of God. This side of the cross, we have a distinct advantage, and this is the grace in our salvation. Let me show you an illustration of this in Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. Jesus is telling parables, and he tells the prominent parable that we've perhaps all heard, the parable of the sower. Man went out to sow seeds. He's planting a garden, so to speak, uh, or a field, and some falls on hard ground, some falls on rocky ground, some falls on weed, weedy ground, and some falls on fertile soil. It's the parable of the sower. And the disciples said, we don't get it. We don't understand it. Why are you talking like this? Telling these stories that are sort of riddles. And Jesus quotes the Old Testament and says it's given to some to hear and believe and see and so forth. And then he points to his disciples in Matthew 13, 16, just these two verses. He says, but blessed are your ears, for they see. I did that same thing in the first service. Blessed are your eyes, for they see. I'm consistent if I'm nothing. How blessed are your eyes, for they see, your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not. And to hear what you hear and did not. In other words, it is a profound grace to live right now. This is the best of all possible times. We like to throw rocks and say, you know, it's a terrible time. <laughs> well, it is terrible compared to some other times, perhaps. But it's not the most terrible by any means. None of us are in jail for our faith. None of us have lost our homes, our possessions for our faith. And certainly none of us have lost our lives for our faith. It is a great grace, friend, to be alive today. God is at work in your life, helping you to see and hear what Moses never saw, what Elijah never saw, what Isaiah never saw. You have a distinct advantage. It's time for us to recognize that God is at work and that he's been doing this thing for millennia. He hasn't been doing it that long in my life, but I live in a time when God is closer than ever to finally pulling out the last thread and making all of this going to be perfect. I live in a time that's great, full of grace. God has given me every advantage. Think about just books, the printing press, 
Didn't exist prior to some 500 plus years ago. Every book prior to that, written by hand. But with the advent of one invention, God created books. Books that we understand and can carry around. So there's a great grace to live in the time of books. The Bible can be printed. The Bible can be translated and was translated some 500 or so years ago into English so that I, an English speaker, an English reader, can actually read the Bible. It is a great grace to me that God has caused me, allowed me to live in a time of enormous privilege. It is a great grace to me. Concerning this salvation, he is reminding these people who have a tendency, like we all do, to feel sorry because of our troubles. He is reminding them, you live in a time of great grace. Because you know what they didn't know. You see what they didn't see. You hear what they didn't hear. You understand what they didn't understand. You know that this suffering, this sorrow is temporary and that it has a purpose and that it's going somewhere. And where it's going is glorious. You know that. And it's a great grace. Ours is a great grace. Because we live on this side of the cross, this side of the resurrection, this side of the Lord's ascension. There's a second thing we see here in verse 11. And that is that as in Christ, the order is always suffer first and then glory. Suffer first and then glory. Notice how he phrases it. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he, that is the prophet, predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Christ experienced suffering and following that, glory. We are followers of Christ. We have no right to assume or require of God that somehow my life should be different than the one whom I am following. I'm following Christ, and therefore I'm going to experience sorrow or suffering. And I live in a broken world that's even under the judgment of the curse of Genesis chapter 3. And so as a result, there are trials and tribulations, many of which I don't have anything to do with, didn't bring on myself, I just live in a broken world. I have nothing to do with hurricanes and tornadoes and floods and fires and all these kinds of things, and yet they happen. And they happen, and they happen tragically, painfully, sorrowfully. And that's just the beginning. I don't know for a fact that there's anything pathologically wrong in my body today, except obesity. <laughs> And pathologically, that's working for me, by the way. Uh, I sleep well at night on a full stomach, praise God. And yet, that could turn on a dime. For me, you, or any number of other people that we love dearly. And yet, Many would insist that somehow we should not encounter these things. And the reason we should not is because God loves us. Somehow, God loves me equals God will never let anything bad happen to me. But let me give you a little newsflash. With two or three notable exceptions in the Old Testament, 100% of all the people who've ever lived have died. Which the last time I checked produces sorrow, grief, sadness, heartache. Which means 
it, on its face, the argument doesn't hold water. Because you're going to die. Statistics vary depending on what year we're talking about. But an overwhelming majority, north of 80% of all the people who die, die sick. Sick. The chances are you're going to die sick rather than in your sleep. You're going to die sick rather than at the wheel of a car. You're going to die sick. There'll be people gathered around, or they won't, because that's another sorrow. And they will be lamenting the fact that you're dying. And there is an enormous sorrow. But the order is always suffer. We live in a world full of suffering. What did Christ come to? He came to a world of suffering. He came to a world where there were lying religious leaders. He came to a world where there were narcissistic Roman political leaders. And those two leaders, groups of leaders, conspired together to kill him. He came to a world badly in need of somebody to straighten it out. The conventional wisdom was that when the Messiah came, we'd put an end to all this shenanigans on earth, and there would not be rivalries and dissensions and evil and taking advantage of people and manipulation and unkindness and jealousies and covetousness and murders and stealing and lying, and that Christ would just make heaven on earth. Turns out that though, though that was the conventional wisdom, it was bogus. Because people always want to make this place heaven. This is the objective. This is where everything has to happen. This is ground zero for the blessings of God. When in fact, the Bible says, this is not ground zero for the blessings. This is simply preparatory for the blessings. They're called glories. Which means, they're better than blessings. You need a new job? Seek first the kingdom and His righteousness. And all these things, Matthew 6 says, these things, the these, the antecedent for these is food, shelter, and clothing. How does God provide food, shelter, and clothing? Well, if you're not a child, He provides for food, shelter, and clothing with a job. You need a new job. He promises clothing. You need a job to have clothing. Therefore, He's going to give you a job because He wants you to be clothed. You need food. Get a job. He'll give you a job. Pray for God to give you a job, but that's not the end all. That's not the blessing that he's talking about when he uses the word glories. Every job I've ever had, including this one, is work. That's right. He, some of you are really hard to deal with. Okay. Only three of you, that's it. No, I'm kidding. I'm just... Kidding to make a point, right? Work is work. Part of the curse in Genesis 3 is that you will work by the sweat of your brow. It's hot, it's uncomfortable, it's muggy, it's cold. It's work. It's work. I wish we didn't have to work. <laughs> one day. One day. But not here. Here you gotta work. And you gotta sweat. You gotta get cold. You got to get tired. You got to get frustrated. You got to deal with suffering. Suffering comes in all shapes and sizes. But if you put your focus on Christ, the order is always suffering that leads to glory. Glory. If you live righteously, it leads to glory. Consider the witness of Christ Himself. Philippians chapter 2. You, 
Remember this passage from when we studied it this summer regarding Christ, the witness of Christ. Verse 7, uh, pardon me, verse 6, Philippians 2, who, meaning Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. See, that's a servant. If you're God and you, you become a man to serve men, that is ultimate humiliation. Uh, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Think about that. He not only came to serve men, but he came to die for men. And he not only came to die for men, but he came to die for men in the most humiliating fashion possible in his day. Now, there are all kinds of cruel ways to die, but crucifixion has to be one of the most. It's humiliating to be stripped nearly naked, hung on a tree right outside town on the side of uh, what we would call a major thoroughfare. Can you imagine if one of us were impaled by spikes, hung on a cross out here on the freeway, virtually naked? The humiliation that would bring. None of us would choose that. None of us would ordain that. And all of us would strive to not live our lives there. That's precisely what our Savior did. That's the argument of Philippians 2. That God, though He didn't deserve to, put up a cross on the thoroughfare right outside of town in order to die for you. He didn't do anything wrong. We did. He's taking our place out there. That's his argument. Therefore, verse 9, God has highly exalted him, bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Every tongue confess Jesus is Christ to the glory of God, the Father. In Christ, the order is always suffering and then glory. He comes, he humbles himself, he dies, he's exalted. Now, what does that have to do with me? Well, for Peter's first century hearers, they're called to suffer, and their suffering includes being in exile in a foreign country. That's not my suffering. But I am called to suffer. You're called to suffer. We live in a broken world, and we contribute to the brokenness. And the order is always that we suffer. In this life, we will suffer. That's the argument, by the way, of Psalm 90. You know, we like to sing the hymn, I'll fly away. That's the text, Psalm 90. Moses writes that, that psalm. We like to sing that. It's a wonderful song about going to glory and going to heaven and all of that. But the argument of Psalm 90 is, until you die, until you fly away, you suffer. So we live in a world where there's no end to suffering. It's ours, it's others, and we have to help others, and we want to help others, and we do help others. But we live in a broken world. I'm in the business, friends, of trying to eradicate the notion that somehow if bad things happen to you while you're being a good person, it doesn't mean God is bad, and it doesn't mean that God has let you down, and it doesn't give you the justification to now be mad at God. You don't get to be mad at God and justify it. You can be mad at God. By the way, He can take it. Better people than you and me have been mad at God, and they didn't get killed. I want to tell you, friend, people get mad at God all the time, but they don't have a leg to stand on. Because he gave his only begotten son and hung him out there on a tree. 
in front of everybody for you. So lest you think that somehow he doesn't care about you, don't forget that. If you think somehow that he has not invested heavily in you and that somehow he has turned off the faucet and he no longer cares about you, don't you forget that. With Christ, the order is always suffering and then glory. And we are the followers of Christ. And so we have no right to expect that we will not have sorrow or suffering in this life. It doesn't minimize it. It doesn't suggest it's not valuable or it's not real. It is. I deal with people all the time, and I deal with my own personal sorrows, and they are minuscule compared to many of the people whose stories I hear. There's just no end to sorrow, and it's real, and we need to mitigate that at every opportunity. We need to come together as a church and use our gifts, as we read earlier, use our gifts to, other, to help one another, to encourage one another. Some, some people need to be the eye. Some people need to be the ear, some the hands, and so forth. We need to pool our lives together and help one another. Because in the meantime, we live in a broken world. But one day, we shall experience glory. I'm reminded of this beautiful passage in Luke chapter 24. I invite you to hear these words. Verse 44. He said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. There you go. See, what's the answer for suffering? Resurrection. What's the answer for suffering? Eternal life. What's the answer for suffering? Heaven. Where our citizenship is. We're not home. We're on our way home. We got to die to get there. Let's not push back on the fact that God has called us to take a few bumps and bruises along the way. Let us rejoice, in verse 47, that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in His name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Think about that. What will you do until we go to glory? Preach. Teach. Evangelize. Be missionary. Live our lives with a purpose. You're not here to make a ton of money, buy a boat, sail around South America. That may be on your list. Bless you. What are you going to do when you get there? Find another mountain to climb? Eventually, you run out of mountains because, you see, this world cannot satisfy the longing for home. It just can't. Sorry. There's not enough money. There's not enough experiences. There's not enough peach cobbler. There's not. It just can't satisfy. When you do it, you want more. Everything in our life has a shelf life. Everything. Because our life has a shelf life. We're going to live our lives until we don't. So what do we should we do? Let's make the most of it while we can. The world would say, eat, drink, and be merry. Jesus says, tell people about Jesus. Which is why the church is roundly mocked by the culture. You really think that what you ought to do is give money that you could use to buy a boat? That you ought to give time that you could spend on yourself? You you really think that sacrificing self-denial somehow is a better way of life than, you know, full-on narcissism? Just me, mine, ours? Yeah, friend, I do. 
I do. I do for a lot of reasons, but let me just give you two. Number one, it's better for you here. Your mental health is not served by your narcissism. Sorry. The more you make of you, the less happy you are. Sorry. And number two, if you will deny yourself here and postpone gratification until glory, oh, what glory that will be. I could talk about that for hours. I'll move along. So as in Christ, the order is always suffering and then glory. The last thing I'd point out here is that this is the word of God. Notice how he phrases it. In verse 11, they are inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted. So you have Moses writing down the words of Christ. The the Spirit of Christ is, is prompting Moses with these words. Notice the end of this section, verse 12. Uh, things that have now been announced to you through those, meaning the, the prophets, who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. So the prophets have the Spirit of Christ talking to them, and their job is to repeat the Spirit of Christ or the words of Christ. Then the Holy Spirit likewise speaks from heaven through the prophets and here through those who preach the good news. Peter, Paul, James, John, prophets in the New Testament. So he's pointing out to the fact that the Old Testament is actually the Word of God, not the Word of Moses. One of the ways that the culture mocks Christians is, what do you believe? I believe the Bible. Well, who wrote the Bible? And the culture always insists the Bible is written by men. Well, in fact, it, they, men do take pen in hand and write the Bible. There's no doubt about it. But whose words are their words? Well, you see, I, we don't have a category for inspiration. We don't have a category for that. Because if I write you a note today after the service, you get it in the mail tomorrow, or maybe an email uh, momentarily, you, you say, these are the words of Greg. These are not inspired. They're not the words of God. And you're right. They are not the words of God. They are the words of Greg. Because we assume that every... Every communication is just the same. They're all identical, just different. Just different voices, different names, different people, different circumstances. And that's true, except when it's not. And when is it not? It is not when God speaks. So he tells us plainly that Moses is not simply writing down the words of Moses. Read Moses, by the way. You can't read the book of Exodus and say Moses is writing this stuff. These are the words of God. And so, the Spirit of Christ is telling these prophets what to say. Then, in verse 12, the Holy Spirit has sent from heaven these who preach the good news, things to which angels long to look. Even the angels don't understand the gospel in the manner which you do. This is the Word of God. We live in a world today that wants to mock the Word of God. Say, hey, look, you, you folks, y'all been duped. Y'all, y'all I mean, it's this full-on Kool-Aid here. Well, if it is, if it is, you have no hope 
of eternal life. If this is bogus, if this is a lie, if this is not the word of God, if it's just the word of Moses or the word of Peter, word of Paul, somebody like that, then this is just the thinking of men. And it has no power to conquer death because men have written a lot of literature about death. And none of it has solved death. None of it. Cemeteries are full of people who spent their lives thinking the Bible wasn't true. Cemeteries are also full of people who spent their lives believing that the cemetery would not be the end of them. That the cemetery would just be the getting off place where they go on to glory. Because they're going to suffer here for 70 or 80 years. And then as Moses said, they're going to fly away. They're going to fly away not because of anything they've done. But because of the work of the man who hung on that cross in their place. They're going to fly away to glory just like he did. I want to tell you, the world's going to mock this Bible. The world's going to mock those who believe the Bible. The world's going to cause suffering for those who build their lives around the truth of God. And they will tell you, this is not the word of God. But I assure you, friend, they're not smarter than you. In fact, they're blind. They're deaf. Their heart is cold and will not believe. They don't see what you see. They don't hear what you hear. But you do. Don't let anybody talk you out of this book. Everything I got, everything you got, is built on the foundation that this book is true. And the man who came from God lived and died and was raised from the dead and returned to God is the Savior. And no opinion of men is going to change that. Thanks be to God. Believe it and live. Let's pray. Father, thank you today for the glory of Christ. Thank you that his resurrection his life. Father, it, it buoys us. It, it lifts us. It gives us hope. No matter the sorrow or the difficulty or the heartache or the suffering, no matter. No matter whether we live as exiles or not. Jesus and his story, the truth, Father, changes everything. I pray for your grace upon us. Help us to follow Jesus, our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen.